So tonight we come to the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. And what we've done over the last few weeks is we've gotten in the helicopter and we have hovered uh, over the book of Nehemiah, the second half. We have uh, taken chunks of Nehemiah. We have taken uh, two chapters at a time, three chapters at a time. Tonight we're taking, we're taking uh, the last chapter all by itself. And Nehemiah 13 is, is a, a chapter where there is some disappointment. There is a, it's a chapter where there is uh, a change of circumstances. Nehemiah has, as we'll find out, after all this time being in Jerusalem rebuilding the walls, getting that done, and then along with Ezra teaching the men so that they can teach their families and they can repopulate the city and repopulate the nation, he then is called back to Persia. And he is there for a while, and then he makes his way back, and that's where we meet him in Nehemiah 13. Uh, Gene Getz, in his commentary on Nehemiah, he does a great job of just giving an overview of what we're going to see in Nehemiah 13. So I'm going to quote Gene here. He says, for 12 years, Nehemiah served as governor of Judah. Other than his rebuilding and dedicating the wall, getting the people to agree and to keep the law, and organizing the work of the priests and Levites in the temple, little is really known about Nehemiah's 12-year rule. But undoubtedly, it was a very successful period of time in his life. When the 10 years or the 12 years were up, Nehemiah returned to Persia, evidently once again to serve King Artaxerxes. How long he remained in this position is not known. Perhaps it was two years or so. While he was gone, some rather startling changes took place in Judah and in Jerusalem. Changes involving serious violations of God's law, the Mosaic law. When Nehemiah once again returned to Judah, he faced a task, and this is fascinating. He faces a task in this chapter tonight, Nehemiah 13. He faces a task that in some respects must have been even more difficult than rebuilding the wall. You wouldn't expect that at the end of the book because the major task had been accomplished after 90 years of the wall being destroyed and then they were away 70 years in captivity. <clears throat> so 160 years waiting to rebuild that wall. They rebuilt it in 52 years. And then they start reforming the nation and the people and they're rebuilding a culture as we saw the last couple of weeks. He goes back to see the king, maybe two years. He comes back. And what's happened is that there's been a shift and there's been a change. And it's, it's not a good one. If you recall Nehemiah 10, verse 29, the people made a promise. They had made a covenant and the leaders had signed it. And this was a pledge to obey the Lord. Now, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and I'm in 1028, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all those who had knowledge and understanding are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses, God's servant, and to keep and to observe all the commandments of God, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. That was the pledge. They had made a pledge, they had made a promise to obey God's laws and commands because that had not been done in a long, long time. Nehemiah goes back to Persia meeting with the king, going about his business and projects. He returns two years later, and he finds <clears throat> that while he was away, the people had drifted back into disobedience and compromise. So the work that he had done, in a sense, 
had been uh, seriously breached and undone. That had to be uh, a, a great disappointment. I mean, there's no way of, of getting around it. It was an, an appalling and disappointing set of circumstances. Inevitably, this has happened to you at some time in your life. Uh, we run into it in life. It's part of the Christian life. God uses the ups and downs. He uses the uh, accomplishments, and he uses the setbacks. Andrew Murray was a uh, South African Christian who was used greatly by the Lord. He had a season in his life where he had the same kind of thing happen to him that happened to Nehemiah. And he was suddenly faced with a trial of work that he had been giving everything he had to build the church in South Africa, there was a great reversal because of disobedience. And uh, it was depressing. So in his journal, as he's thinking this through, he was fighting to get perspective. And he wrote down four things. Number one, in the midst of his disappointment, he wrote this. Number one, God brought me here it's by his will I am in this straight place, and in that fact, I will rest. A straight place is a hard place. Two, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace to behave as his child. I don't want to be here, but I have to remember these facts, is what he's saying. Number three, then God will make the trial a blessing teaching me the lessons that he intends for me to learn. Four, in his good time, he will bring me out again, how and when only he knows. So let me say this, and he sums it up. I am here by God's appointment, in his keeping, under his training, and for his time. I'll repeat that last sentence. This is how he sums up his perspective on his disappointing circumstances and situation. So let me say, I am here, number one, by God's appointment, two, in his keeping, three, I'm under his training, and four, for his time. In other words, this is a chapter in my life that God was ordained. I didn't see it coming. I uh, didn't expect it. I was kind of blindsided. It's disappointing. Not where I wanted to be at this point in my life, but I'm here, and the Lord is overseeing it. That's a great perspective about submitting to God in the midst of disappointing circumstances. Nehemiah in 13, chapter 13, was in tremendously disappointing circumstances because the people had gone back on their pledge to obey the Lord and to keep his law. This is just real life. It's just real life. But what a great and, and what a great and wise and biblical perspective. This is not a mistake. This is not an accident. This is, this is ordained by God. And this trial has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Well, will I always be in this trial? No, you won't. But only God knows the time frame. We know when we're at the beginning... We wonder if we're in the middle. We wonder if it's close to any. We just don't know. And the longer a trial goes on, the more difficult it is to maintain hope. But the key to a trial and to learning the lessons is to maintain hope. How do you maintain hope when the trial goes longer than you had anticipated and... Um, you're not seeing the response from the Lord that you would hope that you would see. Uh, this is taking longer than you really wanted it to take. 
in Psalm 130, familiar words in Psalm 130, the, uh, the psalmist says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. In the depths, in the depths of the sea, in the depths of the ocean, there are two things. When you're in the depths of the ocean, number one, there's tremendous darkness. Tremendous darkness. You, you can't see your way clear. Um, you can't see your way out when you're in the depths because of the darkness. Secondly, there's tremendous pressure. There's tremendous pressure when you're thousands and thousands of feet down. Um, we lost two uh, nuclear subs, the Thresher and the Scorpion, decades ago. That would be a horrible way to die because as the, those submarines lost power and descended into the depths, the men on board could literally hear the sub breaking up because of the pressure. Sometimes life gets dark, and sometimes the pressure is overwhelming. That's where this guy is. Out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. I'm crying out to you. Lord, if you should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. And then he goes to verse 5. I wait for the Lord. Sometimes we're in the depths because of our own sin. It appears that's what's going on here with this man because he speaks of his sin and the fact that there is forgiveness with the Lord. Um, that's a great truth. So if we're in the depths because of something we've done and we've been disobedient, as these people were disobedient in uh, Nehemiah 13, and we confess our sin, does that mean that God will immediately bring us up out of the depths? Not necessarily. Why would he not immediately, if he's forgiven my sin, why would he leave me in the depths where there's great pressure and there's great darkness? Well, that's because there are lessons to be learned in the depths that can be learned nowhere else. And sometimes we will stay for a while. Sometimes we will take a summer school course in the depths. Sometimes we will stay after class in the depths because God has something to teach us that's very, very valuable that you're not going to learn when life is going the way that you want it to go. Uh, it'll have a beginning, it'll have a middle and an end. You won't be in there forever. What you want to do, what we all want to do in those situations is we want to be teachable. And we want to submit to God in those disappointing circumstances. Lord, teach me everything you have for me here. Don't let me miss a lesson. I don't want to repeat this class. I don't want to go to summer school on this thing. That just makes sense. You want a teachable spirit and a submissive spirit. Then in verse 5, he says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait. Watch this. And in his word do I hope. The longer you wait, the easier it is to lose hope. The only way to keep hope alive, according to this, the only place you're going to find hope is in his word. So when you find yourself in disappointing circumstances and overwhelming circumstances, the last thing you want to do is close your Bible and put it on the shelf. You want to keep it open. Because that's your place of hope. Lamentations 3.21. Jeremiah is depressed. He's lost the nation. The worst has happened. And he says in 3.21... In, in fact, it's worth going to very quickly because, and I'll tell you why this is worth going to, we have people, um, we definitely have people outside our churches 
We have people that don't know the Lord who are, who are losing hope. We have Christians who are losing hope because how long is this going to continue? How, how long are these restrictions? How long is, uh, is, is this... Is this interruption, is this authoritarian, is this bureaucratic uh, grab for power going to continue? People weren't designed to live like this. But what it does, it wears people out and people start taking their lives. Because we weren't designed to live like this. Uh, Jeremiah was in... He was dealing with hopelessness because the nation had gone down. They were going to be in captivity for 70 years. In his ministry of 40-some years, he had had one convert. God told him up front, they're not going to listen to you. That's depressing. Look at, uh, it's an incredible book, but look at 317. He says, my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. It is a prophet of the living God. So I say, verse 18 of Lamentations, so I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Possible for a Christian to lose hope. He calls out to the Lord in 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. He's, he's fighting for hope. And then he says this, 21, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's steadfast love never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh Lord. That's how you keep hope. He's losing it, but he's got to recall to mind. If you don't have a Bible nearby, hopefully you've got some verses in your head that you've put there and you can call on them and you can ring them up, and there they are. And you can meditate, you can chew, and you can savor. And you can taste and see that the Lord is good. But it's all in the mind. This is a battle to maintain hope. And it's what Nehemiah is up against. So Nehemiah is a leader. He's a God-fearing man. That's been the, really the theme of the study. God-fearing men. Men who are following the Lord. Men who are all in. Men who are uh, trusting in him. Men who take their cues, not from the world, not from the wisdom of man, but from the living God and from his word. You're either, um, there are two kinds of men, and they're described in Psalm 1. You either live off the wisdom of the world, or you live off the wisdom of God. Is that not true? Absolutely it's true. We were hovering in the helicopter, and now we're moving a little bit. But if you go to Psalm 1, which is a psalm that outlines all of life and our existence in life, there, there, there are basically two kinds of men. And those two kinds of men are defined and delineated in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel of the wicked. Uh, the research of the wicked. The opinions of the wicked. The uh, books of the wicked. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners. Um, bad company corrupts good morals, 1 Corinthians 15 says. Who do you hang out with? Who are your friends? Who are your counselors? Who are, who are your influencers? 
How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And a lot of fools have multiple PhDs and have tenure, but they're still fools. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. You can't trust that book. There is no God. Are you kidding me? You believe there is a God who created this world? What's wrong with you? You believe there's, you believe in intelligent design? Uh, actually, I do. Why would you believe in intelligent design? Because everywhere, everywhere I look, there's intelligent design. Everywhere. How do you get away from intelligent design? You can't. Here's the second kind of man. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. This is the man who leads a productive life, who contributes. Ultimately, in light of eternity, we all come, we're here a while, and we die. And, you know, in 100 years, they're not going to remember you or me. But your life counts, and your life's important. You can waste your life, or you can have a productive life. This is how you have a productive life, is being a God-fearing man. But God-fearing men are going to go through hard things because God wants to build muscle into his men. So Nehemiah is in a rough spot in Nehemiah 13. Uh, Nehemiah is a leader, and when he sees what's going on, he realizes that uh, it's his responsibility and what he does is he immediately takes action and he confronts the compromisers. In other words, he wasn't a passive man. God has not designed men to be passive, but we live in a society where uh, men can very easily become passive. We live in a society where um, boys are so beaten down by this culture um, and discouraged and I've been reading some stuff on boys this week so I can't go down that trail. It's hard to be a boy right now. And the thing that a boy needs is a strong father. The thing that a boy needs is a strong man or a grandfather that can encourage him and uh, tell him the truth, and tell him that masculinity is not toxic. It can be, but it wasn't designed by God to be toxic. It was designed by Almighty God to be a gift. And when you have men who are God-fearing men, everybody benefits, everybody, because He's that tree in Psalm 1. He's that oak in Psalm 1. He's taking in deep from his roots the word of God and the truth of God, and he's living it out in his behavior, and everyone benefits who's around him. That's what happened with Nehemiah. So Nehemiah sees the problem. He takes action. He's going to kick in the gear. John Dickerson has written an excellent book called The Great Evangelical Recession. He tells a story in here. It's worth reading. He says, have you ever kicked yourself for not acting on good advice? Before home values took a nationwide dive, I was advised to sell a property I owned, but I failed to act. In 2005, I bought a Scottsdale, Arizona, Arizona condo for 120,000. Two years later, the property had gained about 100,000 in value. Around that time, a billionaire Arizona land tycoon told me I should sell. I thought he was probably right, but I didn't act on his advice. Later, when prices began falling, I still neglected to take action and sell. I never doubted the expert was correct about values going down, but I doubted the drop would be as drastic or as rapid as it turned out to be. 
My thought was along these lines. Sure, the property might lose the 100000 it has appreciated, but it probably won't drop below the price I paid for it. As it turns out, like most of the country, I underestimated the speed and severity of the disaster. And the expert was right. Five years after I was advised to sell, for about 240000 the property sold for 48900 He goes on and says, I lost a lot because I failed to act. I was warned and I even agreed with the gist of the warning, but I didn't act because it would have been uncomfortable. In retrospect, acting on the advice was the furthest thing from risk, risky, but in the moment, action felt risky. A long time ago in Northern California in Marin County, a very affluent county on the north side of the Golden Gate Bridge, very liberal, liberal, very prosperous. This was in the early 80s. A psychologist whose practice was based in Marin County wrote a book, not a Christian book, but he wrote a book called Passive Men wild women. And it was based on his counseling practice where these married couples who lived a very nice lifestyle, the husbands would get up and go to work, often commuted in San Francisco, and they had their high-paying jobs and their nice benefits and they made decisions and they had people under them and they were involved and they were connected and they were setting plans and objectives and goals. At the end of the day, they'd drive across the Golden Gate Bridge, come home, have a martini, and absolutely become passive. And they would not talk with their wives. They would turn on the TV. They would stare. They would not interact. Same thing with kids. They were, everything they had utterly was spent and there was no connection, there was no leadership in the home, there was no inquiry as to what was going on in the life of the wife or in the children, and it, they were just utterly passive. And the women went wild out of anger and would try to drag a husband into the counselor's office. They might show up once, but that was all they were interested in. They weren't going back because they were passive. Men were not designed to be that way. Men are called to be the family leader. God's called men to lead the home and God's called men to lead the church. That's not real popular anymore, even in Bible teaching churches. But it's what the Word of God says. The enemy wants to make us passive. He wants us to... Um, check out when we get at home. But you see, you're, you're needed. Your wisdom is needed. Your counsel is needed. Your interaction is needed. Your little girls need you. And if you're passive and if you're distant, at a certain age, some young men are going to start show, will begin to show up. And... Um, Maybe young men you don't approve of, but uh, they'll pay attention to her. Uh, you, you don't want that to happen. That's, that's a bad road. You have sons? Those sons need to feel connected. They need to feel like they can talk with you and ask you anything, and they need to be coached, not just about how to throw a curveball. They, they need to be coached on how to hit a moral curveball. They need to be coached through life. Well, I'm not real good at sports. Well, you know what? That's no big deal. You're good at this. You're good at this. Sports isn't everything. Sports is a game, son. Sports can be fun, but not everybody's wired for sports. Where do you think you're gifted? Well, I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty good at math. You're really good at math. You're, you're actually incredible at math. And you know what? That's a skill God's given you. And you like it, don't you? Oh, I love it. You got to go after that. 
Because I'll tell you, there aren't a lot of brain concussions when you study math. There are not a, there's not a lot of knee replacements when you study math. So don't try to make the kid into something he isn't. Help him to identify where he's been gifted and skilled by God. I'm reading a book right now by Cal Newport, which is excellent. He's saying that in our culture right now, it's always go after your passion, you know, fulfill your passion, fulfill your passion, fulfill your passion. That's nonsense. I've met guys who spent years and years wasting their life because their passion was music and they were going to be full-time worship leaders. They were going to be full-time musicians and they were mediocre. Well, that's my passion. Well, that's fine, but you're about a C minus. What are you good at? What have you been skilled to do by God? Well, I'm a pretty good finished carpenter. There you go, man. What a gift. What a gift from God. You can do something with that. At the end of the day, you can walk out of a job feeling productive and you've done something of substance and 60 years later, you can drive down the street and say, I built that. And if you want, you can be in the worship band on Sunday. So you play music, but you see, you gotta think straight. Now they need an older man to help them, right? You can't check out, we can't get passive. Nehemiah did not get passive. <laughs> I love this stuff because it's real life. It's just cotton-picking real life. He comes back, it's disappointing. I can't believe this. I mean, I wasn't gone that long, and they have completely punted on what they said they would do. That's right. So what do we need here? We need a God-fearing man to lead. So he takes four immediate steps. And if you're looking for an outline, here's your outline. Four immediate steps. Number one, he confronts Tobiah and cleanses the temple. Verses one through nine. Secondly, he confronts the tax cheaters or the tithe cheaters. That's verses 10 through 14. Third, he confronts the Sabbath breakers. That's uh, chapter 13, verses 15 to 22. Number four, he confronts the attempt to redefine marriage. Let's go back to number one. Uh, one, two, and three, I'm just going to hit real fast because I want to get to number four. So he confronts Tobiah and cleanses the temple. So if we get back to Nehemiah, you probably never left Nehemiah, but I did. So in 13, we read this. 13.1, on that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. So they had in Israel a calendar, and they had days of public reading. Well, they're reading the scripture again publicly. We've seen this before. They read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now, that may sound harsh. Um, real quick history lesson. So Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah, as you remember. Um, really a nice Nice place to live, nice restaurants. Uh, gosh, it was very progressive. Just um, really, really a nice spot. Anyway, we picked it, chose it. Family was there. Um, the angels of the Lord show up and said, get your family and get out of here. And don't look back, because the, the Lord's going to destroy it. Don't look back. His wife looks back. She's turned into a pillar of salt. He flees, goes into the mountain. He's got his two daughters with him. And uh, the daughters, and this will show you the influence of a godless culture if, if you're a passive man. 
Now, if you're an active man, you can um, teach children, you can instruct children to fight off the godlessness. But Lot was a passive guy, and uh, his daughters had been influenced, and so they get into the cave, and they realize that whole city's being destroyed. They have no marriageable young men as prospects, so they both decide to sleep with their father, and they both become pregnant. One of the girls has a son by the name of Ammon. The other one has a son who becomes Moab. Those are the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they hated those two groups, hated Israel. And years later, when Israel was being led by Moses out of the promised land, the um, Moabites, and it was just told to us here in the passage, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they hired this prophet named Balaam. They paid him a lot of money to curse Israel. And every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel, God made his tongue bless Israel. Every time. But because of that, they were excluded. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't become converted. They had false gods. I said this last week. So Ruth was a Moabitess, this young woman. She was a Moabitess. She was born in Moab. But she had a mother-in-law named Naomi who had come over and moved into Moab with her husband. And then her husband died. Her sons died. So now Naomi's a widow. Ruth is a widow. The other daughter-in-law's a widow. And Naomi... Naomi says, I'm going back. And the other girl says, fine, I'll stay here. Ruth says, I want to go with you. Wherever you go, I will go. And your God, he'll be my God. And she went back, meets Boaz, a godly man, God-fearing man. They get married and they become the great-grandparents of David, king of Israel. There's always room. There's room at the cross. There's room at the cross for you. Though many have come, there's still room for one, the old hymn says. There's room at the cross for you. But that's the background. Now we get into chapter, into verse four. This is, this really, really gets interesting. I I love this stuff because it's just real life. Now, prior to this, Eliashib, the high priest, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, being related to Tobiah, Well, that's interesting, because Tobiah was an enemy of the Jews, and we've seen his name come up before, Sanballat and Tobiah. He was a sworn enemy. He tried to stop Nehemiah. He threatened Nehemiah. He tried to stop the rebuilding of the wall. But here you have the priest who was related to him by marriage, and that never should have happened. We'll see that in a minute. The, high, the priest, Eliashib, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offering, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain. Wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the feet, for the priest. So in other words, in the temple, there were these chambers where the people would give their, we're going to see in a minute, their tithes, which they would bring produce from the land. They would work the land. They would bring the first fruits so that They could sustain the priests and the Levites. They would bring money. But what they did was they cleared out the storage. They cleared out the Costco units in the temple. And what did they do? This priest uh, remodels that for a condo for this guy who was against the people and had been his whole entire life. This happened while Nehemiah was away. Um, in 7, he says, I came to Jerusalem. I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. And then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms, and I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. You know what he did? He cleansed the temple just like Jesus would do 500 years later. You say, well, that wasn't very nice. That's right, it wasn't. But it was right. We, uh, we live in an age where so many people think that the uh, ultimate virtue is niceness. Just to be nice. 
just to be nice. It's good to be nice, but um, you need to be more than nice. It, it was said a long time ago, I heard this from a, a wise individual, that there are four kinds of people in life. There are VIPs. Those are very important people. You know, there are people that we can, you can spend time with a lot of people. There are people that you know that want to spend time, want to get your time. So they're, they're VIPs. Those are very important people. Those are the people close to you, the people that you love, people you have a responsibility for. They could be uh, leaders that you're working with. They're, they're very important people. They're strategic. Uh, then you have your VTPs. You, you want to spend time with your VIPs. Then you have VTPs. Your VTPs are your very teachable people. And um, you want to spend time with teachable people. So in your sphere of influence, if someone's not teachable, why would you spend time with them? It's a waste of time. Uh, they think they know it all. They're going to instruct you. And they're 40 years younger than you are, but they think they know everything. And they don't. And until they hit a brick wall going 150 miles an hour, they're not going to listen. So don't worry too much about them. When they hit the wall, they'll probably show up and seek you out. But you look for VTPs. So if you've got VIPs and you've got VTPs, those are good people to spend time with. Then you have your VNPs, which are your very nice people. Very nice people are very nice people. You could spend 100 hours a week with them, and they'd still just be nice. Wouldn't make any difference. Wouldn't see any change. They're just nice. They're just nice people. And you got to have some nice people. God bless them. But you don't want to spend your time with nice people because they're not going to mature. They're not going to grow. They're not necessarily teachable. They just sort of go with the flow. And they're influenced by what others think. And they just want to get along and they don't value truth, but they, and they value relationships over truth. And they will sacrifice truth for relationships, even when the relationships are wrong and evil. Then you have your VDP, your VDPs, which are your very draining people. You can spend 100 hours a week with them, and they will resent you for not giving them more time. So who do you spend your time with? Well, obviously, not the last two groups. You spend your time in the first two. If you want to be productive and you want to make a difference in life. So he cleanses the temple. Um, then the second thing he does, he confronts the tax cheaters, those who aren't paying their tithes. Uh, I also discovered, verse 10, that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. What were the portions? It was the produce. It was the vegetables. It was the food that would sustain them. It hadn't been given. Why not? Because the people quit paying it. And the people had said they would pay it earlier in Nehemiah. Uh, this, there, were, there were three tithes in Israel. A tithe is 10%. So two of the tithes were paid every year, so that's 20%. Another tithe was paid every three years, so basically that's 3%. So there, were the, there was not just one, so the tithes came out to about 23%. It was the taxation system of Israel. And the priest and the temple were the, were the seat, were the capital, were the government. And they, the, those, the tithes were the taxes to sustain those who led the government, and it was a theocracy, and, and they gave worship to God. So you see how that works. But they quit, they quit supporting those guys, and what happened, the temple began to decline, the worship began to decline, because the priests couldn't do their jobs. The priests had to go out in the fields, and they had to work the fields, and the worship and the spiritual tenor of the nation shifted, all because they disobeyed God. So in 13, he puts them in in charge. He says, because they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. So we got to fix this, and he fixed it. He got some reliable men that could be trusted. Then thirdly, he confronts the Sabbath breakers. This is 15 to 22. Now, I said this last week. I'll say it again. They were Israel. We are the church. Um, 
the Sabbath is Saturday. If you go to Israel, they shut down on the Sabbath. And I mean, they lock it down tight. And if you want some M&Ms, you better get them before the Sabbath hits because you're not gonna get them for 24 hours. Um, that's just how the nation works because they still observe the Sabbath. Because Jesus rose from the dead on the first day, which is Sunday, Christians began to meet on Sunday. Um, so we are not under the Sabbath as they were under the Sabbath. So there wasn't to be business, but because Nehemiah was gone, they started flaking out and compromising. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks, commerce, they're doing all kinds of stuff. They brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Uh, he talks about the merchants. Look at verse 17. Then I reprimanded, reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, Why? what is this evil thing you are doing? This is evil. It's evil. Because you made a commitment to God, this is part of God's law. There was a Sabbath day that they were to observe, and there was a Sabbath year. Every seven years, they would let the land, they wouldn't, they wouldn't plant. They would let it go fallow because God demanded the Sabbath here. By the way, when they went into captivity in Babylon, they were in captivity, anybody remember for how many years? 70 years, because for 490 years, they hadn't observed a Sabbath year. So you can pay me now or you can pay me later if you're Israel. And God got his Sabbath years. Uh, this was serious. Now, why does he get so upset? And he gets upset because they knew the blessings and the curses. And they had been in captivity for 70 years. And he's thinking to himself, do you, are you guys out of your mind? You want to go through the discipline of God again? Why don't you just obey him and get his blessing that he wants to give to you? Why are you fighting him? Why are you so stubborn? 19, it came about that just as it grew dark, at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and they should not be open until after the Sabbath. I stationed some of my servants at the gate so they couldn't bring a load in. 21, then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I'll use force against you. He wasn't messing around. Now, he was the governor. He could do this. He had the right to do it. Now, let's get to the fourth one. He confronts the attempt to redefine marriage. This sounds um, kind of familiar. Genesis, God established marriage. God established, I've said this before, uh, two ancient boundaries that God established. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he made in the image of God. There are two genders, period. That's always been understood until about five years ago. It's always been understood. Everybody in the world understood that, everybody. But the further you get away from God, the more insane you become and the more people get their lives destroyed. So, uh, that was the first boundary, the boundary of gender. Uh, the second boundary, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's marriage. So both are under attack. And, and what's happening here, mixed marriages were forbidden. Look at verse 23. In those days I saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So when the word of God was read, these kids couldn't even understand it. Oh, by the way, and the Ammonites and the Moabites had their own gods that were evil, wicked, horrible. Little girls were not safe in this culture. They could be kidnapped and taken from their parents at any time and put into the temple for godless reasons. 
God had said this from day one. If you go back to 1 Kings 11. And, and once again, we're just watching. We're, we're watching every single thread of biblical morality. We're watching it come under all-out assault, are we not? Now, as I go to 1 Kings 11, I'm going to keep my finger there and I'm coming back to it, but I want to go, I'm going to go back to Nehemiah 25 and 26. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. This guy did not mess around. But once again, he's trying to save them from the judgment of God. Watch this. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the, the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil? When you violate what God says about marriage, it's evil, it's wicked, it's wrong. By acting unfaithfully against our God, by marrying foreign women. First Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, gosh, there it is again. Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them. You shall not take them out to dinner. You should not take them to the prom. Don't get their email address. You shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. And God said, you shall have no other gods before me. Solomon held fast to these in love, held fast to the women, the foreign women. He actually built temples for them around the perimeter of Jerusalem to, to foreign, wicked gods. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away from God. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Uh, hey, David was a sinner, as we all are, but David, he repented of his sin. Solomon just kept going down that, that track. For Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. There it is again. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab. There it is. On the mountain which is east of Jerusalem and for Moloch, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon, they would burn their babies alive in the hands of this false god. Uh, thus he also did for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrifice to their God. And the Lord God was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Uh, when you miss with God's plan for marriage, you're, you're on. You, you don't want to do this. This is serious. Oh, no, we just want to be fair. We just want equity for everybody. There should be gay marriage because... And, and if you read the, the um, Supreme Court decision written by Kennedy, it sounds like it was something out of the Hallmark Channel. It sounded like a romance novel. It was all about feelings. You can't live off feelings. You read Kennedy's, uh, he should have been ashamed. And he will be when he stands before the Lord. <sighs> by the way, let me say a word about the Supreme Court. They're not. Every one of those justices will make an appearance at the Supreme Court because all judgment has been given to the Son and they'll give an account. It'll be made right. We were told, oh, we just want equality. But they got equality and then they immediately wanted more. And within a week, we suddenly were on this transgenderism kick. 
Because you see, they're not satisfied. They want to continue to rebel and they want to bring us along with them and they want us to submit. And there's great pressure. 2 Corinthians 6.14, you say, well, you know, that, that, that's Old Testament stuff there that we've been looking at. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 6.14 might be of interest to you when it comes to relationships and what the Lord says. You remember this passage. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever. Um, so if you're single and you're lonely and you're looking for a wife, he who finds a good, oh, a good wife finds a good thing. Good for you. That's great. But you better find out where she stands with Jesus. Because the last thing you want to do is marry an unbeliever. You want hell in your life? You marry an unbeliever. Because she's got different gods. What are you going to teach your kids? Where are your kids going to go to church? Are they going to church? Well, she's a lapsed Catholic. Okay, fine. Maybe you ought to think this through before you uh, marry her. But it's amazing how many people don't think this through because they're in love. They've never had something this intimate and this close, and it's just, it's just, so, it's just so shallow is what it is. It's infatuation. So use your head. Use your head. Look for a godly woman. For Proverbs 31, woman one who has the potential, one who loves the Lord and is teachable. If you get a Proverbs 31 wife, she'll do you good all the days of her life. <laughs> it's the greatest thing. Other than salvation, it's the greatest thing you can have. She's on your team, she's for you. She'll tell you the truth because she loves you. <laughs> it's a great thing. But we get lonely. There's a gentleman I'm aware of, probably 50, raised his, his wife and him, believers, raised their kids in, in Bible-teaching churches, gone to Christian schools. Uh, his wife passed away several years ago. He's lonely. He has invited a um, woman to move into his home with him. And they're living together. The same home where he still has a men's Bible study every week. His son is absolutely cannot believe what he's seeing. Because there's no um, there's no integrity, there's no congruency. That man is uh, redefining God's definition of marriage. Recently <clears throat> a Bible church has started, it's growing, um, a gifted pastor, young pastor, gifted worship leader, and pretty soon it's growing like crazy. Strong Bible church, strong Bible teaching, strong worship. And then it comes out that this young lead pastor is physically involved with the wife of the worship leader. And then later it comes out that the very charismatic worship leader is involved with the wife of the senior pastor. It's called swinging. I thought swings were in a tree in the backyard. But apparently they're not. And between them, there are eight children. I went on the guy's website, and I saw a family picture, four little cute kids, I would say under four of them, under seven, and the other couple had the same thing. And it was going on between all four of them. And they're teaching the Word of God. And they're raising their hands in worship. And it was a show. And it's come out 
My question is, what are those little children, how are they going to feel about the Lord Jesus Christ as they get older? Uh, I, I think the chances are that they're going to discard the faith because of what they have seen. God calls us, guys, and I'm going a little long here. I, I, I don't want that to happen to me. It could. I've seen guys, <laughs> I, I've seen it happen to guys my age. It... it, it, it the enemy never stops coming after us. You've got to guard your heart all the way to the finish line. You don't want to do something stupid and ruin your life. Your job, my job, I'm going to talk to me for a minute out loud, and you can listen in if you want. I want to be a God-fearing man. I want to be a one-woman kind of man. Uh, Ephesians 5, I am told that I am to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That means I'm to have a sacrificial love for my wife even as we grow older. Uh, that's my job. That's what the Lord expects from me and it's what he expects from you. And we may not have the youthfulness we used to have when we start breaking down and we need new shocks and we need new struts and sometimes we need new plumbing and sometimes the plumbing doesn't work like it's supposed to and suddenly there's sags and there's wrinkles and there's all this stuff. That's just life. Shouldn't change a thing. Not a thing because you made a covenant before God Almighty. And this is what separates the men from the boys. And this is what needs to be seen. We need to see some God-fearing marriages as models and examples. And as we saw last week, when you got a God-fearing man with gravitas, you're going to pull the young people into your orbit. There's a gravitational pull. Husbands, love your wives. Ephesians 5.25 Steve, love Mary just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. To sanctify, that means to make her holy. That means to purify her. That doesn't mean you swing. Does it? First Thessalonians 4, you, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus that you abstain from sexual immorality. You abstain. You don't do it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. He goes on. This is a powerful passage. Husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. It's falling apart, guys, outside the church and inside the church. I want to be a God-fearing man, so do you. I want my life to count. So what do you do? You love her to the end. Well, Steve, I already messed up. I'm on my third marriage. Then make this one work. Forgetting what lies behind, I press onward. Okay? You're a husband. You're a father. Husband, interesting word, comes from the old English house bound, house bound, because people, most of them were farmers, and families lived together, extended families, and you lived off the land, and a man was house bound, husband. You lived off the land, you had extended family, it was a Walton kind of thing, if you remember that. And men were tethered. They were connected to the house. And it was their job to provide and protect and to make secure and to provide physically and emotionally and spiritually. That's the job. A husband takes care. He takes care. There used to be a major in college called animal husbandry. It's the breeding and care of animals. 
uh, there's land husbandry. It is the rotation of crops. It is the sowing. It is the harrowing. It is the, all the prep that goes in. You make spreader dams in order to use the water. It's, you take care of the land. We're redefining marriage inside the church. And that's got to stop. Our job as Christian men is to take care. Our job is not to take over. Our job is not to take. Our job is to take care and love our wives and nourish and cherish them just as Christ loved the church. And your little girl will see it and she'll know by looking at you the kind of man she ought to look for. And your little boys will see it. And they'll know intuitively the kind of men they need to be. This stuff counts. Uh, God always has a remnant, guys. Things look bad, but you know what? He's working. He's got a remnant. Jesus is coming back. What did we say last week? God blesses those who obey him. So let's keep fighting the good fight. Let's be Nehemiah. Let's be God-fearing men. Let's, uh, let's stay in the word and let's take care of our little spheres of influence that God has given us. It's a good life we've been given. Yes, it is. Father, we thank you. We thank you for um, the fact that we know you. We thank you that you tell us the truth about life. We don't have to be confused about life or what's right or wrong. You've told us, and you've told us the best way to live. Now, there's a pull away from these things. We know that, but help us, Lord, to be strong against temptation. Help us not to walk alone. Help us to walk with another man. Help us to, uh, to walk two by two, because when one's down, the other can hold them up. That's how it works. We look forward to meeting again in September, if that's your will. But we trust you with our futures. Encourage us. Let us know that your eye is upon us and that you're for us and that you love to bless your men and your eye is upon them. You've given us a future and a hope. Keep us close to you. Make us quick to confess sin when it occurs and bring favor on our homes and on our marriages. Give us homes that are sweet and precious. We ask in Jesus' name.